you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We've just spent five weeks hearing sermons preached from this chapter, so probably someone is saying, did he mean 16? No, Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is well known to deal with many complicated issues. That if we misunderstand this chapter, if we misinterpret, misappropriate this chapter, we can fall into error. We can fall into the error of church independency. We can fall into the error of Presbyterian church polity. We can become divisive and exhibit behavior that is unbecoming of the body of Christ. If we get this chapter wrong, we can become confused about how to think about the matters of law and gospel, about how to think about grace and works. Acts 15 is very important. Our brother Taylor has worked through these texts and shown us the threat that arose to the gospel from those Jews that were trying to add circumcision as a requirement for salvation. But we need to, we need to see a few additional things and I'll probably say a few things repeated that he's already said, but we need to see a few additional things from this chapter. What I'm trying to say is brother Taylor preached five messages from this chapter and I could preach 10 more and we still wouldn't say everything that could be said here about this text. In, instead, we will spend today, that's the plan to spend today in an overview, one, one high altitude view of chapter 15, and then we'll move forward next week, Lord willing. Instead of reading the entirety of the chapter, that's what I started with, and then as, we, as I began to prepare, I realized we don't have time to read the entirety of the chapter. So what I'd like to do is just work through it as we go. So please keep your Bible open and close, close at hand. We'll be following along. And there are things that I'm going to say, and you need to be looking every once in a while and making sure that you see that in the text. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would apply your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, that you would make us good hearers of the word. God, that our hearts would be good soil for the seed of the gospel to take root. We pray this morning that your word would accomplish the sanctification of saints and the salvation of sinners. Lest this preacher hide me behind the cross of Christ. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So we begin in verse one, Acts 15, one, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers. And this is what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is the threat to the gospel that we've seen in the past. And we dare not think that the Acts 15 and the council and the statements that were made from Paul and then from Peter and from James and the letter that was written. We dare not think that these events in Acts 15 resolved this matter. These same problems, adding works to grace, will come up again later in the New Testament. And if you're not aware, 
Let me go ahead and tell you, I'll break the news to you. This is still an error that we see among us today to this very day. Now, somebody may think, be thinking, is there anybody that's vying for adding circumcision to salvation? I don't know of anyone vying to add circumcision to the gospel, but there are those who would add other types of works. And any addition to the gospel, listen, this is important. Any addition to the gospel renders the gospel false and powerless. Any addition to the gospel is a false gospel and a powerless gospel. The Mormons teach that you do all you can do. You pile up all your good works that you can muster. Then at the end, grace comes in to fill up the last bit needed to save your soul. And that is a heresy straight from hell. I'm going to say that. And I also want you to know what we read here in Acts 15. One is just as much a heresy straight from hell that you must be circumcised to be saved. The Mormon teaching that it's grace after works is a heresy from hell. The Roman Catholics, those papists, teach that the benefits of Christ's life and death are not replaced. Your, your life, your sin, and, and your things being placed on Christ and His imputation to you, but they teach that your good works are infused with Christ's good works. I, I always think, I don't have this in my notes, so this may be a messed up thing. I always think of um, Wolverine. You know, he had the skeletal structure, but then they infused him with that metal that I'm not going to pretend to know what that is. It was an infused, it was an adding. They took what he had and they added something and what he had and what they added together made Wolverine. Never heard Wolverine in a sermon. Have <laughs> the Catholic doctrine is exactly that. That you take what you've got, your works, your righteousness, and it is infused with what Jesus brings. And together, together there is salvation. And whatever sin might still remain can be burned off in purgatory fires. And this awful doctrine that they teach as salvation is grace mixed with works and it is heresy. You did not hear me say that there are no Catholics going to heaven. You heard me say this and I want to be very clear. The doctrine of the Catholic Church is a heresy from the pits of hell. <clears throat> these teachings of the Mormons, of the Romanists, and of these Judaizers here in Acts 15, these so-called gospels are what the apostle called not a gospel. They are damnable heresies. But they are also very close to the heart of men. We tend to think, we tend toward, I can save myself 
Or I can at least add something to my salvation. This is very close to the heart of man. But we, according to the scripture, the Bible doctrine is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, that we can only be saved when we place our faith, when we trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. In His work. And we receive that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And even for those of us who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we sometimes are tempted to return to the idea that our works can add something, can enhance our eternal souls. This was the era of the Galatians. Paul had to remind them of the, the grace by which they were saved. It was grace without works. He called them back to the gospel. The gospel is not only a call to the lost. It is certainly that. But the gospel is also for Christians. You ever get tired of hearing the gospel? I went to church. The preacher preached. It was just the gospel all over again. And we may not say that out loud, but sometimes we feel that. The gospel is for Christians as well. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for the whole world. For the child of God, the gospel reminds us of what Christ has done to rescue us from the pit. The gospel combats our prideful notions of meritorious works. The gospel says, no, it is by Christ alone. The gospel anchors the Christian in the rock of our salvation. Christian, we need to hear the gospel. But let us not think that this error from Acts 15 is dead. May the true gospel of God's grace apart from works be preached in our pulpit and may we who have been saved by the gospel continue to preach that gospel to our own souls as a comfort and as a guard against error. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them. Just consider this. Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. Do you remember what happened there? They were run out of one town because of threat of death. They went to the next town where Paul was stoned and they intended to kill him and left him for dead. They had been met with controversy, divisiveness, trouble on every hand, but now they're home. Isn't it good to be home? And what do they find? Trouble. They've returned from their travels. And they're met with more trouble. If we read further, we'll find out that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was never far from trouble. And the other apostles were not far from trouble either. And the elders and the Christians of the early church were never far from trouble. 
In John 16, 33, Jesus gives us this promise. If you love promises of scripture, here's one for you. In this world, you will have trouble. It's the promise of Christ. So we should learn from our text. We should learn from the scripture that trouble is an ever present thing in the life of a Christian. We should not expect peace and comfort in this life. Any peace and comfort that we find, we should be thankful for. But we should not expect that to be the norm. But we, for peace and comfort, we look to the eternal state. We look for the life that is to come. There we will find our final rest. But here in this world, you will have trouble. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas here find more trouble. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them. It says here, and we're going to get, we're going to dig in a little here. It says here, the brothers in the New American Standard. If you have a King James, it says they determine. Now what they're determining is that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. So they're, they're saying we need to send Paul and Barnabas, but they're saying this. If, you're, if your Bible says the brothers, notice the font. Notice the, notice the italics. The brothers or the brethren is added and they say they add these things for our help. And we're going to see this is not really a help. But the King James adds or, or puts they, and that would be that would be the word they, and that's not a help either. Because we've got to ask this question: who is they? Who are the brothers? Starting here in verse 2 and through the remainder of the chapter, we need to take great care. There are pronouns like they and them and other references like the brothers, the brethren. Look at verse 4. We read there that in Jerusalem they were welcomed by the elders. Look at verse 6. And we notice that the apostles and the elders came together. In verse 13, James addresses brothers, brethren. Even in the letter that was sent down in verse 23, the salutation begins with the apostles and the brothers who are elders. And we have to be careful with this because there's no proper names. We have to ask, who is they? Who are the brothers? Who are the elders? What, what churches? Are, are these the elders from Jerusalem? Are these the elders from Pisidian Antioch? Are these the elders from all the churches of the regions? Hint, that's the answer. Are these, are these, who is this? Who are the elders? Who are the brethren? Who is they referring to? And we have to ask these questions lest we fall into error. Because the answer to these questions, who is this? Who is talking? This will determine how we see the church of Jesus Christ organized and functioning. Now I'm going to use a big word here. Some of you, it might be new. Ecclesiology. You can just think of it as the study of the church or how the church, this is how we'll be using, how the church is organized, how the church is put together and set up, how the church functions. 
Now, some of you know that there are different ways of churches functioning. Some of you have been to churches that have a senior pastor and a junior pastor or an assistant pastor or under pastors. And we don't have that here. And, and it's not that, well, we're not a big enough church yet. Once we get there, then we'll, no, we don't see that as a biblical model. There are pastors, elders, same word, bishops, same word, shepherds. And now we have in this church two elders and we don't have different titles and different job descriptions. Now, now, yes, mine is the ugly mug that you look at more in this setting. But we are equal Equally elders of the church. All of these things, this falls under ecclesiology. How is the church established, governed, set up, functions, all of those things. So we're going to use that word ecclesiology. When you hear me say that this morning, he means how does the church work? How does the church function? How we answer the questions of who is they, who are the elders, who are the brethren, who is this in Acts 15? How we answer that will determine how we see the church of Jesus Christ functioning. Our ecclesiology is set right here in Acts 15. And it's not just us. Many churches come to Acts 15. But because we have different answers to who is they and who are the elders and who are the brethren, we come to different conclusions. Some, someone may be asking. I, I hope someone is asking. Isn't this a historical narrative? This is not didactic instruction. This, this is a historical narrative. Isn't this, this is maybe how you're saying, isn't this description and not prescription? And the answer is yes, you are correct. This is not prescription. There is no command. I would have the churches established thusly. But what we do have here is not explicit instruction, but we have implications. The descriptive texts. Now, we, we dare not take a descriptive text where there is another text that is explicit instruction and try to juxtapose them. We dare not do that. But where there is no explicit instruction or where the Bible is not as clear on some things, we can derive a lot. We can learn a lot from a historical narrative. We can learn a lot from description. That's what we're doing this morning. We're learning a lot from this description. And we're, we're being instructed by the scripture implicitly. When we find implications in scripture rather than explicit command, we must be cautious. Because men fall into error when they misread, misinterpret these implications. And, uh, and sometimes that leads us into horrible heresies. Sometimes it leads us into things that we would say. That's a difference of opinion and a difference of understanding. And while we don't deny that you are Christian brothers, we do separate. That's why you hear us say about our Presbyterian brothers. Do we ever say Presbyterian without saying our Presbyterian brothers? We say that, but there are things in Acts 15 that, that cause us to divide and separate in ecclesiology. So when we read 
they, the elders, the church, some take this to mean, well, this is Jerusalem. This is only Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem, the elders at Jerusalem, the brethren at Jerusalem. This is a single church that is spoken of here. And then they determine that a single church, let's just say something like the church of Rome, can govern an overlord over all the churches. We believe this to be a misunderstanding of this text and an error in ecclesiology. This is not Jerusalem ruling all the churches. Some take this text, particularly in verse 2, when it says brothers or they determine that this is some sort of a presbytery summoning Paul and Barnabas to give an account. Come before the council and give an account because we are like a presbytery a ruling over. In, in this view, the presbytery would have authority over the elders of the churches and authority thus over the churches. And we believe this too to be an error. Now, not the same error as the first error where Jerusalem is ruling over. Not the same, but we also believe that to be an error. Someone might look at verse 19 and you see James, the elder of the church of Jerusalem, and he says, my judgment is, you see that in the text? My judgment is such and such. And you may think that this is James ruling over the whole gathering. This is not just one church ruling. This is James ruling over the whole thing. James is over all the churches. But when we understand that James's statement, it is my judgment, is better understood to be this. I make a motion. I mean, that's that's what James is saying. He's not saying it is my judgment and you all must fall in line. It is my opinion. It is my judgment. And I move that we take this opinion. And that's what James is saying here. So we do not think in this text of James as some sort of a popish figure. That would be error. Also, not in my notes, but let me just pause here and say James, it is my judgment, was in the presence of Peter, who is also not ruling from a popish throne. You don't, you don't find that in the New Testament at all. It's the invention of men. We believe this text, when carefully parsed, is more like a formal association of churches. It's not a loose association, but a formal association of churches which listen and then give advice to the churches. This matter is so important as the protection and preservation of the gospel and this gathering, we believe, is a gathering of elders from all the churches. And it was necessary. If Paul and Barnabas could have resolved this matter locally, they would never have left with it. That it would have been settled right there. But, but the effects of this 
what James called trouble. James didn't say you are troublemakers. He was more, he was more gentle than I would be. But he said, it is my judgment, and I'm paraphrasing here, that we not trouble the churches. What he's saying is, you've been troubling the churches. You've been causing trouble. You're troublemakers, and we need to stop this. These troublemakers had troubled so much, and it had gone widespread, and it could not be handled locally. It was widespread heresy. The Jews, many of the Jews believed that the events with Peter and Cornelius, remember where Peter went to the home of Cornelius and only after he had received a vision, multiple visions from God. And he went to the home of Cornelius and Gentiles were saved by grace and received the Holy Spirit. Many of the Jews believed, well, that was just that was just the exception to the rule. I mean, that was a one time thing. That's not what it was. It was it was what God was doing. It was it was to correct their understanding of the kingdom. But they thought, well, this is just a one time thing. And this council of churches, the associational gathering that included the apostles and the elders of the church was necessary to point out this thing with Peter and the thing that's happening with Paul. This is the same thing, and it's what God is doing. And the gospel is what was at stake. I, I would also, just while we're here, better hurry. While we're here, I would point out, James is also managing the difficult climate of those who might look at Paul and say, I think he's the problem. Paul's the problem. He's, he's really the troublemaker, isn't he? So when James makes his judgment, he says, our brother, Simon Peter, see, he just, he just kind of glosses over Paul and goes back to what Peter had dealt with with Cornelius. And that is to um, managing those troubled waters very carefully. Some people have a problem with that. I don't. I'm not, I don't have that personality. But, but that's, that's what he's doing. The gospel is what is at stake. And this gathering from all the churches in the region, what I'm calling an associational meeting, was necessary because the gospel was at stake. And, and the threat against the gospel did not die then, and it will not die until the end of this age when our Lord returns. So the churches of Jesus Christ Informal association and relationship with one another. The churches must stand and we must stand together. And at times we must come together, meet together to face, to battle the enemy of the gospel. Now, this is not the only text that, that we build our ecclesiology on, but the framers of our confession who knew scripture well, used this text greatly in chapter 26 of our confession. I'm going to ask you to turn there. If you don't have a copy of the confession with you, you can find it in the hymnal. If you have your hymnal, uh, in the back. Now, in our hymnal, it gets confusing. There's hymn number 685. That's not where we're turning to. But if you keep going to the back, there's page number 685. Page number 685. 
This is chapter 26 and paragraph 15. Chapter 26, paragraph 15 of our confession says, In cases of difficulties or differences, either in points of doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned, or any one church in their peace, unity, and edification, or any member or members, plural, of any church are injured in or by any proceeding in censures not agreeable to truth and order. Okay, let's pause right there at the colon. Let's just say this situation fits what we find here in Acts 15. It's a, it's a matter, it's a, it's a difference and difficulty in a point of doctrine. And we should also note, just while we're here, notice it talks about churches. It, it talks about a church and churches. It talks about members of a church or a member of a church. Sometimes members of a church feel like, well, if we're being abused by our pastor, spiritual abuse, which happens, if there's something going on that's wrong here, where do we go? That preacher was here when I got here. What do I do? I have no recourse. This is recourse for you, church, and for members of the church. And here's what's to happen. It is in accord to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers, those elders sent to be messengers, meet to consider and give their advice in or about the matter of difference to be reported to all the churches concerned. Do you see that's what we're reading here in Acts 15? The churches, the representatives or the messengers from all the churches came together. They heard and they gave their advice and they wrote a letter and it was sent to the churches. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see Paul taking the letter and reading it and, and distributing it. So we're going to see that. That's exactly what we find here. Uh, uh, we're, okay, how be it? Sorry, I'm picking up at a semicolon. How be it these messengers assemble? Here's the limitation of power. This is why it's not a denomination. This is, this is why it's different from that. The messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power, properly so-called, or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censure, either over any churches or persons, or to impose their determination on the churches or the officers. The association and any council that hears, I've stopped reading now. The association and any council that hears and, and does these things doesn't have authority to say you must. They give advice that may be heeded or not heeded. If it's not heeded, sometimes if you've abandoned doctrine, if you've abandoned uh, the thing that holds us together, then that means Removal of the fellowship of association. That's, that's what we have here. Here in Acts 15, we have the foundation laid for associationalism. Somebody says, well, associationalism is not here. Don't fall into the word concept error. The word is not here. The concept is here. So we have that here in Acts 15. And there is no biblical basis for a denomination. I can put a period there. But there's no biblical basis for a denomination ruling over a church. 
There's no biblical justification for a church presiding over another church, a la Rome. And there's no grounds for independency of a church. If you see a church that has the word independent anywhere in their name or on their sign, beware. There is no biblical basis for independency of a church. And there's certainly no biblical basis for independent or untethered, unconnected Christians who are not formally part of a local New Testament church. There is biblical implication here and elsewhere that leads us to say that Christ alone is the head of the church, that he has given the keys of the kingdom to the church, that those Christians whom he has called out of the world are commanded to walk together in particular churches. That means specific churches, not just a different church every time the wind blows another direction and not no church, but to walk together in particular churches, walking together for mutual edification, for the public worship of God and for the other duties that God requires of us in this world. Now, I've just taken that and distilled and, and reworded some of the things that our confession speaks. Allow me now to call your attention to verse 13. I've determined I'm going to finish. I haven't preached in a while. <laughs> verse 13. We're going to read through verse 18. After they stopped speaking, James responded saying, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Simon Peter, has described how God first concerned himself about taking a people for his name from among the Gentiles. Notice that taking a people for God's name from among the Gentiles. Then he, in 15, the words of the prophets agree with this just as it is written. Watch 16 and pay attention. After these things, I will return and... I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. Is that a new construction project? That's a rebuild. I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. The Judaizers, they thought, well, that thing with Peter and Cornelius, that thing with the Gentiles, that was just momentary. That was just temporary. That was a one-time thing and it's over. But that was not true. And the church council has spoken to that effect. But today, there are still those who hold to this error or to a form of this error. They say the Jews... They're the real chosen people of God. And the Gentiles, this Gentile time, which is the time in which we are living, that's just a temporary ordeal. God, God had his chosen people and then he, he called for a timeout. They'll use this terminology, a parenthesis. And the Gentile, this church age that we live in, this is just a parenthesis in God's bigger story, which is with the Jews. And one day, 
God will return to his people. He'll pick back up with them again, national Israel. The people who are Israel by physical descendancy. That's the error. That this thing with the Gentiles, even today, I mean, it's been going on for near 2,000 years, but even today, it's still just temporary. But what we read here in these verses, what we have just read is what God is doing with the Gentiles is a rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. It's not a new group. It's not a new people. It's not a new thing. He's not starting over. He's not having a parenthesis. This is God's people. The people who are called by my name, which includes the Gentiles who are called by my name. The tabernacle of David is being rebuilt and the rebuilding includes, in the words of this text, all the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord. And this doctrine that I have described, this parenthesis where the Gentile thing is just a temporary moment. This is, this is the doctrines of dispensationalism that relegate Gentiles to some second class status in redemptive history. And this is a gross error and an assault on the true people of God, true Israel, who are descendants of Abraham by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a quiet bunch today. It's okay to be quiet. You're either quiet and in agreement or quiet and disagreement or quiet in confusion and I hope that you will no matter what your position search this search this text and see if this is not the truth that's being taught here verse 19 therefore it is my judgment that we do not cause trouble for those of the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them saying and this is what they want to say Abstain from things that are contaminated or polluted by idols. That's number one. Abstain from acts of sexual immorality. Abstain from fornication. Pornea. And thirdly, abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. So we have these three things. There are two ways that we can consider and look at these three things. And one we've already looked at. These things could be the things that were particular temptations from the days of lost sinfulness for those Gentiles who had come to Christ. And, and we just talked about this morning in Sunday school. If you have a particular inclination toward a particular sin, don't go down that road. And that may be how we understand this, and, and I think that's perfectly valid. But there's a second thing that we may learn from this. Many of the Jews would see the Gentiles as enemies. If the Gentiles, Christians, were ever to win the Jews, to win them over or to win them to Christ, if they were to be a witness of the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, then they would need to abstain from these things that would be a sure and certain offense to the Jews. Now, now two of these things are, are temporary there for this particular time. One of these things comes from the moral law of God. Abstain from fornication. 
But, but they weren't saying ignore the rest of the moral law. They were just saying this is a particular thing that we might want to point out to you. And then these other two. And these three are mentioned here that we might learn a principle. And it's the same principle that's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll ask you again if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 8. We'll read a few verses there. This principle that we find here in Acts 15 and that we're going to read about in 1 Corinthians 8 is the principle of how we are to love those who are weaker. Here, advice is given not to eat what is polluted by idols. But 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to find this. Paul makes this case that idols are nothing. We would all say, amen, idols are nothing. I'm I know I don't have time. I met a missionary from uh, Africa who had a little idol. It was about 12 inches tall, a little idol that was an actual. They worshiped this in some African tribe and he gave it to me. And he said when he gave it to me, it's probably not good for me to have it. But I'm in Texas. I put it in my office as decoration. And people ask, what is that? And it was a conversation piece. And we could talk about idolatry and we could talk about false gods and true God. And, and it meant nothing. And I was not one, not one night that I lay awake, lay awake, lay awake, worried that I was going to have some curse or, you know what? It's a piece of wood. I had a bunch of them in my garage and one on my shelf in my office. It was nothing. And Paul makes that case. This is nothing. So, so the difference when we're told in Acts 15 we would advise you not to eat the, the food sacrificed to idols, those things polluted by idols. And here in Corinthians, the difference that's made is not the idol, because the idol is nothing. The difference that's made is the offense that is brought to the weaker brother. So let's read uh, verses 4 through 13, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13. Therefore, Concerning the eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, there's lowercase gods and lowercase lords, yet there is for us the only one God, the Father from whom all things uh, from whom are all things and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, not all people have this knowledge. Not everybody gets that yet. But some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. See, do you eat the food because it's a good steak or do you eat the food because it was sacrificed? Are you thinking that while you're doing it? Okay, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse eight, now food will not bring us close to God. We are neither worse if we do not eat or better if we do eat. But take care that this freedom of yours, Christians, this is a freedom of yours. Take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, his will, uh, will his conscience, if he is weak, not be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? 
For through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined. The brother or the sister for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brother and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again so that it will not cause an offense to my brother. It will not cause my brother to sin. I think it's important here as we talk about this principle to say that this text is often misused. This text is often wielded as a weapon against those who wish to squash Christian liberty and bind believers to their own personal pet set of do's and don'ts. Some of you have been there. If you don't know about it, we got some stories we can tell you. Some Christians who should be mature. I've been a Christian for 40 years and you should be mature. You should be able to eat meat, but you're still on milk. You seem to enjoy holding. I'm not talking to anyone that I, I'm not talking to any one of you unless it applies. You seem to be holding others hostage by saying, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. When these are the teachings that seem, seem to have a wisdom, but it's according to the religion of men. And those arbitrary man-made rules have no power against fleshly indulgence and sin. So this is abused. That said, remembering the abuses, there are times when it is right, when it is necessary that we curb our freedom, brothers and sisters. That we curb our freedom for the good of an infant believer. There are times when we must lay aside our liberty for the sake of a weaker brother. This is what we have just read in 1 Corinthians, and it's the same principle that we have in Acts 15 that is given. This is what we would have you to do. Lastly, I promise, let's look at verse 36 and following. The sending of Paul on the second missionary journey, particularly, let's look at verse 37. Barnabas wanted, determined to take John, who is called Mark, along with them also. But Paul was of the opinion that they should not take him along with them because he was the man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There's something here for us to glean, for us to learn about choosing a man for ministry. John Mark had, I've heard people say, look, Paul thought he deserted. I'm not sure. John Mark deserted them. He was there. He was the helper. And he said, I'm out of here. I'm going home. He deserted them. And this demonstrates in him an immaturity. I, I know this was a maturity matter and not a character matter. And you can know this too. If a man has a character shortage, if a man is short of character, then there must be an exclusion from ministry, absolutely. 
But later, the apostle Paul, who had said, no, we're not taking John Mark. And, and by the way, this was not just loosely held particular preferences. This was strong enough that Paul and Barnabas, the dream team missionary duo, split. This is a big deal. And Paul, who said, I will not go with John Mark, later says, send John Mark. He's a value to me. Later he saw value. So it wasn't a character issue. It's a maturity issue. John Mark had grown up a good bit. And, and he was even used to write the New Testament gospel that bears his name. Church, there, there are times when we must declare that a man who is desiring ministry, desiring ministry, we must say he's unfit. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to say, but it's, it's, we must sometimes. But there are other times, and this text shows us one of them, when a man needs a bit more time, a bit more maturity, more seasoning, more conviction. And that's what Paul is standing for here. When we see this disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. It's such a disagreement that leads to this permanent division. So it's not just a mild preference. It was a deeply impassioned belief on the part of both men. Barnabas felt like John Mark was fit for ministry at that time. And Paul felt like he was not. And there was a split. And we learn here this painful truth. Divisions come. Divisions come in the church. There are divisions that come because of divisive men and women, either in the membership or in the leadership of the church. And that is sinful. That is wrong. And it is hurtful. It is sad. Many Christians, some of you listening today, you have felt the pain of this kind of division with a divisive person. And you bear the scars of that awful, awful thing. We often say there's no hurt like church hurt. There's divisions because of divisive people. There are divisions over important doctrinal matters. What if the Jerusalem council had gone another way? What if some of them had said, no, we do believe that we need to do, we need to add to the gospel. Then that could have been a split over doctrinal matters. But praise be to God, they agreed. There was agreement between the apostles and the elders of the churches. But we know of division, of splits over doctrine. Now, now Brother Taylor shared some, some things. Churches split over stupid stuff. I, I grew up in a church that was very independent. There was a problem there. But there was another church that we knew of that had built a new building. That's, that's testing. And it wasn't the color of the carpet. Everybody knows that a church should have red carpet just like the blood of Jesus is red. That's, that was the general consensus. But when they went to buy the toilet tissue to go in the restrooms, now back in the 80s, toilet tissue was sold in colors. Y'all remember that? Anybody? Y'all remember colored toilet tissue? This church split over the issue of what colored toilet paper 
they were put in the bathrooms. Now, surely there were other underlying things. But I'll never forget that. My pastor called it the tissue issue. <laughs> they, they split over the tissue issue. And, and it's, you know, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Such a disgrace. I got to get back to here. I'm going to be here all day. There are splits. There are divisions over doctrinal issues. And we have seen this kind of split in our own association. A split in our national association arose over the classical theological doctrine of divine impassibility. If you want to know the details of that, I won't take time now, but I'd love to talk to you about it later. This threat to the doctrine of God saying that God is more like a man. This threat would potentially lead churches of the association to a paganized understanding of who God is. A council was called. The elders of the churches met. This was before we were officially members of the association, but I was there present in the meeting. Theological study was done, reports were given to the churches, and many of the churches stood by with by casting their vote. They stood by the classical biblical doctrine, holding the line as biblically conservative Christian churches. Others denied the doctrine and abandoned the Bible's teaching. And they were removed from fellowship and membership in the associated churches. That division was necessary. That division was heartbreaking. Your heart goes, who wants to see a man who, who is a pastor of a church denying the biblical doctrine of God? It's heartbreaking. But it was necessary. And ultimately, we must say it was a good split. It was a good split. <laughs> I will never forget <laughs> in a meeting when one man stood and said, I hated to see that split. And I didn't want it to happen. My brother David Dykstra stood up and said, I'm glad it happened. Doesn't that seem cold hearted? No, it had to happen for the doctrine. It had to happen to stay faithful to scripture. It was necessary. The division in Acts 15 toward the end here, this division between Paul and Barnabas, it's neither sinful, divisive people, nor is it doctrinal things. This is a split that makes it difficult to point to error or sin on either side. Barnabas, really, we have to say, Barnabas had every right to his opinion that John Mark belonged in the ministry. We can appreciate Barnabas' loyalty to this young man, his faithfulness to, to want to pour into this young man and want to bring him along. Well, we can appreciate that. Remember, uh, John Mark was his cousin. But Paul also had every right to his opinion. And I personally believe that Paul was correct. It seems clear that Mark did need some time to ripen on the vine, as it were. We can't say here that 
Barnabas was in sin. We can't say here that Paul was in sin. We can hope that even in this case of division, that there was there was continued ministry of God. And we know there, there was. We see in the New Testament, Paul's ministry laid out in detail. And we see later that John Mark is writing the book, the gospel of Mark. We, we see that there was ministry that continued. But this really resulted in the multiplication of the workers and the, the effect of the ministry of God. It, it's a blessing. But that doesn't make it less difficult. We know when we see things like this, and I, I believe this would be the case for Barnabas and for Paul, that there's got to be forgiveness. There's got to be, you can't hold hard feelings and a grudge. That's what must be here. So, let's land this plane. There's so much here in Acts 15. So much to learn, so much to caution us, to warn us. So much to teach us about how the church should be organized, about our ecclesiology, how the church should operate and function. Let us pray that God would teach us as a church among other churches of like faith and order so that we might bring glory to him through the acts of his church. Trying God of heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that you apply these things to our hearts Sanctify your people, edify the church. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our dear Lord and Savior. Amen.